of a group of students, you'll see it on the back of the bulletin, that are here from traveling through from Minnesota. And uh, they're a more of a uh, traditional, and uh, it, it'll be a spectacular concert. I've heard some of their music. They're very well trained, very well practiced. So try to come this evening, if you will. I think that's at 6 o'clock. Is that what it says on there? 7 o'clock. Wow, that's right, because they're getting here just a little bit later on their travel through. But several of you are also uh, taking care of some of them, housing them. Thank you for that. And you see this little picture, uh, which you see back here behind me. I'm pointing at the one I see over there. That is uh, from a few years ago, and our group is leaving for Haiti on Friday. Um, nobody is in this service. We, ha- we prayed for some of them in the first service. But continue to pray. I want you to know this theologically. Sorry, I'm going to preach for a little bit. So the, <laughs> the, because some people have wondered, should we be going? It's a level four travel uh, advisory. It's, you know, a lot of people are very concerned and so forth. Is that wise to do? Um, I do want you to know this, that when we make decisions about this, we do want to take a little bit of risk. It's obviously, you know, it's risky to drive down I-70 to get to the airport from here. But it's not a silly risk, and this is really important. We don't put God in a position where he has to do a miracle to keep us safe. We We just don't do that. No, we don't. No, that's important for you to know. We actually make a decision with a lot of information. There are contingency plans in the background, and we really believe because of the distance between Puerto Puente and Cap Haitian, where our team goes, that they're very safe, and our people there are, are also thinking that way. But continue to pray for them, pray for their preparations this week, and pray as they're there that they can be very effective and, and working in lives. Okay, now you can have it. Go. You know, um... 25, 26, 27 years ago, right after Ceausescu was ex- executed in um, Romania, uh, a friend of mine says, hey, let's go see what ministry opportunities look like. So I was living in Germany, so he flew over, and we hopped the train to Romania. So we got to the border at about 1 in the morning, and they got us all off the train. And the uh, station chief walked up and down, let me see your passport. Looks at my passport, sticks in his pocket, looks at my friend's passport, walks on down the line. You and you, grab your bags and come with me. This is my first experience in trusting the Lord, really trusting the Lord. So we put us in this room. We had two armed guards on either side, door in, door out, and we couldn't go anywhere. We sat there for two hours. The train's long gone by now. And the station chief comes in and he says, you, grab your bags, come with me. So we go out back into a dark alley, no lights. That's not a good sign. Well, <laughs> it, it depends your perspective. Okay. So we're walking with this guy. My friend figured it out first. And uh, he said, you're a Christian, aren't you? And the guy said, yes, I am. And we said, what are we doing? And he said, uh, uh, I'm going to drive you. I have no idea the trains down the line, what they're going to be like. So I'm going to drive you to where you're going. It's about a two-hour drive. And he said, uh, for 30 years, I've been the station chief here. And he said, I have a deal with the Lord. Christians smuggle in Bibles and money. And it's good for our people. So I made a deal with the Lord. I would look at their passport and look in their eyes. And he would tell me if they're Christians. Hey, the good news is you've gotten confirmation. (laughs) (laughs) So we asked him, what would happen if you got caught? They would execute me. For 30 years, he had done that. 
And so he recognized by looking in our eyes, and he drove us two hours to the place we were going to go. So uh, we didn't have to take the train. And, um, and I thought about all the, began to think about all the times that Paul placed himself at the Lord's disposal. And now, 27 years later, uh, it's kind of natural for me to uh, become a blessing junkie, uh, expecting the Lord to uh, step in. Okay, before we uh, jump into holiness, I want to stop and pray for Marie Wood. Uh, Last service, we actually brought her up, anointed her with oil, and had the elders pray for her. For those of you that know her, she's been on a journey with cancer, and all of a sudden she's gotten bad news. She's taken a turn. Cancer's coming back. And so uh, uh, the whole church prayed for her first service. So uh, let's pray for her right now. Father, we lift up Marie and Tim, not just Marie. They're a couple, Lord. Um, she is struggling deeply right now, Lord, and um, uh, she has a great spirit, a great attitude about it, but Lord, um, the cancer is coming back. And Lord, we intervene and we just ask on her behalf, please, please stop it. We're not ready to let her go. She has work to do yet for the kingdom. And um, so whatever it takes, Lord, to turn that around, you can heal her directly, you can use medication, it doesn't matter to us. We just ask that you would uh, turn this, turn the course in a different direction. Uh, be with Tim and be with the doctors this week as they go through testing and more, uh, more treatment and more um, tests to find out what's going on. So deliver good news to her t- this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in a series on holiness. We're in the third season of Lent, third Sunday of Lent. And so we've been in holiness since the beginning of the year, January 1st. And uh, hopefully by now you're looking forward to getting past this whole concept of holiness and sin and getting to the Spirit and what's that mean for us. We've come a long ways, haven't we? Worked our way through the Old Testament, lots of passages there, looking at holiness. And I've asked the question every step of the way, when you think of holiness, when I use that term, you're to be holy, does that make you think, oh, I have more rules? Or does that make you think, this is an invitation into a very intimate and privileged position with the one true living God who made us. When we talk about living holy lives, we're talking about living the life that he created us to live, the life that will bring us the most joy. As Christians, we believe there's one true living God, don't we? Don't ever be ashamed to say that. That's what we believe. He has expressed himself in our world through his son Jesus. But we believe in the one true living God. He made all of this and he loves all of creation, loves every person on the planet. That's the God that we serve. And so he has invited us into this this life of holiness so that we could share that with him because he is a holy God. That is a real privilege to be invited into that life of holiness. So we've talked at length about the the journey. So Israel becomes a paradigm, if you will, becomes an example of what we're like. So you have the enslavement by Egypt. Then you have him taking them through the Exodus. They cross the Red Sea. They've been delivered from sin, I mean from slavery to Egypt. And, um, And then they give the law at Mount Sinai and begin the wanderings. And what we learned through that by looking at the law is that the problem wasn't the law. We're going to come back and look at this in more detail today because we're in Romans 7. Just a caveat. We're in one of the most uh, complex sections of Romans, one of the most argued sections in scholarship, and scholars are all over the map on what Romans says. 
So I'm going to take you through what I think it says and how it fits into the whole book of Romans. But we're going to come back and look in a little bit more detail about what the law actually did. But in a very simple way, what the law did was expose our sin. It was a gift from the Lord. It exposed our sin. It told us the truth. And the law was very clear and very simple. You could take any command, it doesn't matter, any of the 613 commands, and you look at that command, you say, well, yeah, that's easy to obey. There's nothing that was hard to obey about the law. The problem wasn't the law. The problem was here. That's where the problem was. So then last week we looked in Romans 6, which uh, Romans, I think, follows the the general uh, storyline of the Pentateuch. And so Romans 6 was all about freedom. The Exodus, you have been given freedom from slavery to sin. That tyrannical master called sin is no longer your slave. It no longer has control over you. It's the other way around. You have control now. And so then the implied question that Paul's beginning to raise is, so why do you keep sinning? Why? You don't have to. You choose to now. You didn't have that choice before, so why do you keep sinning? We finished with Romans 6. How many of you were here last week and saw the video? Most of you? Okay, good. You saw the video. I want to give you a picture of what freedom looks like in the life of someone else. And uh, in our country, by the grace of God, this is absolutely not a criticism, but in our country, we have things very good compared to the rest of the world. And so if you've listened to testimonies, one of the things I've observed over the years is that when people get up and share their testimonies, some people have been redeemed from a life of drugs and immorality and things like that, some addictions, and others have not. And those that have not, it's very common to say, boy, my testimony is not very exciting. Listen to their testimony. Yeah, that is absolutely not true. We serve the one true living God. Anytime he works, steps into somebody's life, it's exciting. Anytime. It doesn't matter what your journey looks like. But it has caused me over the years to realize that there's two journeys that Christians experience that have to do with their testimony and how God has acted. You have those who who have come, been rescued out of a life of something terrible, like you saw, and they have a real sense of that freedom. That's part of my story. There's a real joy and excitement of where I came and I'm very excited. And then you have those who are raised in homes, in Christian homes, where they never experience that. And sometimes they don't capture that excitement. Well, the problem is, we don't want our kids to go back and go through that, do we? Do we want our kids to become drug addicts so they can experience redemption in a new way? Absolutely not. So therefore, there's another way to look at it. For those that have avoided that, that's the very thing they need to understand, is what did they avoid? So for those of you that feel like you don't have an exciting testimony, hold it, pause. Yes, you do. Do you want to go through what that you saw that girl went through? No. Do you want to go through a life of addiction? No. You absolutely don't. But if you want to feel that inward excitement of that freedom, then spend time with people who have been through it. And then you will find out what you avoided. See the difference? Through the years, as, I, as I've taught, I've taken students down to AIDS hospice centers, um, soup kitchens, and let them see firsthand there's just nothing in the world like helping bathe someone who's about to die from AIDS in a couple of weeks. You want to gain a sense of value and appreciation for where the Lord brought you and what you avoided? That's something worth doing. You want your children to gain some passion? Take them down and let them see. Let them see what they avoided. I praise God that most of you avoided that. 
I really did. But you still have to cultivate that sense of excitement and passion that Paul talks about. So he finished, we finished last week with the obligation in Romans 6. Now that we know we have been given freedom, we have an obligation now to live a life of faithfulness and righteousness with excitement and zeal for the Lord. That's our obligation. He doesn't tell us how to do it yet. That's coming. It's not coming today. In fact, we're going to back up and dig ourselves a deeper hole in this whole concept of sin so you have a sense of why God did what he did. That's what Romans 7 is all about. So now that we have an understanding of what we've been freed from, we've been freed from slavery to sin, Romans 6, what role does obedience play? What role does it play? Are we required? I'll learn to talk sometime. Are we required to keep some kind of law? Is that it? The answer is no. No. So Paul says throughout Romans and Galatians very powerfully, if you try to keep the law, you know what's going to happen? The law is going to turn right around and condemn you. It creates this this twist, this, this repeated cycle The more you try to keep it, the more it reveals your sin and your inability. You try a little harder, it reveals your sin even more. You try and and you get into this catch-22. And so he's going to argue that, no, that's not it at all. In fact, that's where he starts in Romans chapter 7. You're going to have verses 4 and 5 put up on the screen. I'm going to read verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as the person lives. So we're going to lay out what is his argument here for what the law does and doesn't do. Okay? So, argument number one. The law no longer applies because we've died to the law. Verses 4 through 6 up on the screen. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. This is why he redeemed us. This is missional, so that we might bear fruit. I'll say it several times today, so that we are a guide to those who can't see. They're still blind. We provide that example to them. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, non-Christians, i.e. before we believed, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. Eat that fruit, you're going to die, God said. That's what happened. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6. Okay? Before we were believers, everything we did led to this. From a spiritual perspective. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. Now that we're redeemed, we've been released from the law. We serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The law no longer applies because we have died to the law. What does that mean in English? Okay, you're driving down the highway and you're speeding and you get caught. How many of you speed? Nope, I don't want to know. So you're speeding. You're not just speeding a little bit, because that just gets you a ticket. You're speeding like 30 miles over, so you get an invitation, a personal invitation to see the judge. Okay? You go before the judge. What's going to happen? You're going to have to pay a fine. There's a cost. How do you get out of that fine? There's only two ways. One is they're going to do away with the law. That's probably not going to happen. The other one is you die of a heart attack on the way to the judge. You have to pay a fine? 
You die of a heart attack, you're walking up steps? No. You died to the law. God's not about to remove the law. The law is perfect. The problem isn't the law. So you only got two options. Only two. God can remove the law, which is not going to happen, or he can kill you. You died to the law. That's what Romans 6 argued. When you were baptized with Christ, you died with Christ. Isn't that an incredible metaphor? When you think of it? That's why the law no longer has power over you. But he goes on now, and he's going to give a further second argument. Now, this next section in Romans 7, for those of you that have studied Romans, is a very complex area of study in Paul. It's got all these twists and turns and language that, that traps us a little bit. And so we're going to work our way through it a piece at a time. So you're going to get used to seeing Romans up here. But let me just simplify the whole argument this way. Neither knowledge nor effort can prevent sin. You died to the law. Neither knowledge nor effort can present sin. So in the first section, it was in the present tense. We have died to the law. We're dead. Now he's going to switch to past tense, and he's going to move us back into what happened at Sinai. And he's going to use the Sinai experience to help us understand what happened with the law. So the very first question he asks is in Romans 7, 7. It's a rhetorical question. Is the law then sinful? Is there a problem with the law? What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Is there a problem with the law? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. If there's no command, there's no sin. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by this covenant produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. There is no sin if there's no law. You have to have a law. Can't get fined for speeding if there's no law on speeding. Make sense? Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the command put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The law is fantastic. For many reasons, in a world where the gods are dead, And they had to guess. Where there are no gods, they had to guess. Our God spoke and said, here's what I want you to do. It's very simple. That alone was an act of grace. That's an act of grace. But then it did something far better than that. It exposed the sin. It exposed our inability to keep it. Not because of the law. You can't blame the law. Like I said, you could take any one of the 613 commands and read it and go, well, that's easy to do. Why didn't they do it? Because of this. That's what the law revealed. 
Now, let's stop for a moment and redefine sin. Let's kind of put it back in its little cage here so you make sure you understand it. Here's how I think of sin. If I have a four-and-a-half-year-old, I mean, four-year-old son, and I say, don't run out in the street because you're going to get hurt. If he runs out in the street and I don't say anything, is he going to get hurt? There's a good possibility, isn't there? Four-year-old don't belong in the street with traffic. Therefore, if I say, don't run out in the street, that is an act of grace. Just like if I don't say it, it's an act of abuse. Isn't it? If sin is an act of grace. God's not some killjoy up there just waiting for you to break the law. That's not what he's doing at all. He has laid out what you're created for. He's inviting you into a life of holiness because that's where you will find the deepest joy you ever imagined. So all the the definition of sin is, all that is, is an act of grace on God's part to say, if you do X, you're not going to be happy. You do Y and you will. That's what it is. Don't give sin any more power than that. We've managed to idolize it, I believe, in the Western church. Where it takes its own life, it has more power than God meant for it to have. No, it's meant to be a diagnostic tool to help us understand. You're not happy with your spiritual life? I'm going to ask you questions. I'll ask you questions like, are you sleeping with somebody else? That's not going to bring happiness. You addicted to pornography? That's not going to bring happiness. Struggling with alcoholism? That's not going to bring happiness. You greedy? That's not going to bring happiness. You struggle with anger? That's not going to bring happiness. So if you're struggling in that walk with the Lord, that means there's something in the way. We call that sin. And it's hurting you. It's hurting you. So Paul right here says one of the key purposes of the law, and he's beginning to express it now in very clear language, is that the law was a gift from the Lord to prove to you that you sin. And you couldn't do it. It's, one of the, it's the all-time big catch-22 of the Scripture. You simply cannot do it. You do not have the created design to please God. It's not it at all. But it, here he's talking about what happened in the desert because he was given a commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. That's when we learned that coveting was called sin. And coveting, guess what? It destroys community. Start stealing each other's spouses and watch what happens. Coveting destroys community. All sin does. All sin does. And so he's saying that when we were out in the desert at Sinai and we got this commandment, now we understood that not only was this going to hurt us, but we didn't have the capability of not doing it. Neither do you. Every one of you covets something. Every one of you. But he didn't stop there. He uses this chance to say, That's what happened in the garden. Because he says in verse 9, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. That's the story of Adam and Eve. They were alive, enjoying wonderful fellowship with the Lord. And then he said, Don't eat of that one tree. And what did they do? Just like all of you. Oh, I'm going to go to that tree. (laughs) Right? Our heart takes us that way. And they died. If God had not told them, don't eat from that tree, it wouldn't have been called sin, but it still would have hurt them. You know why? You're not made to know that knowledge. 
There's nothing in you created to know the knowledge of good and evil. To exercise the knowledge of good and evil, you have to be omniscient. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know your motives. That's why we always modify our apologies with an explanation. I'm sorry I was late today, but uh, my wife had to go to the hospital. All of a sudden, that changes everything, doesn't it? But your boss didn't know that. And so to truly exercise the knowledge of good and evil, you have to be God. It's a divine prerogative restricted to God only. And so God tried to protect us just like the four-year-old. Don't run out in the street. Don't eat of that tree. And they ate of the tree. If he hadn't told them, if I hadn't told the four-year-old, they're probably going to get hurt. If he hadn't told them, they ate of that tree, they would have been hurt. Because now they'd have the knowledge without the capacity for managing it, which is a description of us. That's why parents, it's so hard when you go on vacation with your children. He said, she said, we're not Solomon. We can't cut the kid in half. Right? You can't figure it out. We don't have the capacity to, decide, to accurately discern good and evil. That's why God tried to protect us from it. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Okay? Adam was alive before the commandment, and he died, just like God said he would. So that raises the second rhetorical question in this chapter. Did the law become death? Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. I'm sorry, verse 13. But that which is good then, did that which is good become death to me? Did it kill me? And the answer is no. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. What did Paul say in Romans 5? Through one man, sin entered into the world, and therefore death came, and death came to all because all sinned. That's what sin did. It brought this terrible, horrible, heinous, vile situation into our world. Don't for one second think that these other religions are peaceful. I asked a Buddhist monk in Kathmandu one year, "What's one? show me one uh, Buddhist who's done anything good. Well, we pray. I don't care about that. Name one that's done anything good. Most he could think of was the Dalai Lama. What has he done? He prayed. What did you do about the people that's being sold into slavery? What did you do for them? What did you do for the starving people? What did you do for them? It is you, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. You see, God used the law to reveal to us sin just isn't a little mediocre. It's not like we have a white lie. Sin is absolutely, totally destructive in every way. In every way. That's why theologians use total depravity. Every molecule of you has been affected by this. That's why we struggle. Okay, now look at the rest of this passage, starting in verse 14. He's going to say that this was actually the problem all along. Now, we have to read it slowly. It's a complex little section here. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. That's what happened with Adam. We sold out. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But whatever I hate, that's what I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Because that's what the law said. 
As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. You should read this passage fast. I guarantee you won't make it through. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Okay. This is where the disagreement comes to the surface. Is he talking about the life of a Christian or not? I don't think he is. Now you may say, well, that kind of sounds like my life. It does. I agree. But there's several reasons to think something different is happening here. Remember, he's talking about what role the law plays in the history, in our life, in our church, in our world. That's what he's talking about. Now, except for psychopaths, I never met a person that wanted to be an idiot. We may have differences of what that means. As C.S. Lewis argued, everybody has a moral compass. It's just broken. But everybody wants to know. And so I think that's what he's talking about. In the, the end, that law, that inner law of God. I'm not sure he's talking about the Mosaic law. I said he's talking about our created design. We want to do what's right. We just can't figure it out without Christ. So here's my reasonings for why this is a picture of a non-believer instead of a believer. First of all, Paul is using his own Jewish experience to illustrate his point that effort is not good enough. That's his second point, second argument. Knowledge and effort are not good enough. All the effort in the world will get you nowhere. Okay? So, my very first reason. There's no reference to the Holy Spirit in this section. Eyes mentioned 30 times. Holy Spirit's used 21 times in Romans 8, but not here. So why would he bother to describe the life of the Christian without bringing in the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is the very essence of the Christian life. My second reason. If it is a believer, it contradicts Romans 6. You see, Romans 7.14, Paul says he is sold into sin. Sin is presented as a ruling power at least four or five times in this section. This is in contrast to Romans 6, where we've been freed from sin. Sin is no longer our master. It doesn't make sense that he'd say, you've been redeemed and sin is no longer your master. Ah, well, not really true. Sin really does control you. That doesn't make any sense to me. This is what it's like as a non-Christian. You just don't remember. Next argument. This is a very dark and despairing view of the Christian life. One of continual frustration and capitulation to the inevitable. We can only give in to sin. Where's the abundant life that Jesus talked about? Where's that? And he's going to talk about it in Romans 8, by the way. Where is that life that brings joy to us? 
Next argument. The eye, he says, cannot do any good at all. I think this is a reference back to Romans 3, where before he talks of Christ, he's talking about the entire fate of the world. There is no one who does good, not even one. It may look good, but it's not. Not in here. So in Romans 3, it's very clear that that's an argument for who the unbeliever is. No one does good apart from Jesus. Finally, this seems to contradict Galatians 5. Galatians 5 says, we have lust of the flesh. That will be eradicated in glory. And he fills us with the fruit of the Spirit. These are in opposition to one another so that you will not do what you want. If you live by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So the answer in Galatians 5 for the Christian struggle is that we live by the flesh. But that's not the answer here. It doesn't even bring up the Spirit. That leads him to despair. Verse 24, What a wretched man that I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through the Spirit. No, through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is talking about salvation. This is giving you a glimpse of what the non-Christian world wrestles with and they don't even know it. They want to do good and they can't. They can't. He still hasn't answered the question yet of how we live a righteous life that comes in chapter 8. But he's been very clear, I think, up until this point. We've been freed from sin, but there's still a problem. Neither knowledge nor effort, neither knowledge nor effort can prevent sin. So what is the answer? Well, you're going to have to come back. So, we have a responsibility, uh, an obligation in Romans 6 to think a certain way, to live this life of righteousness out in the the world. We have this obligation to do this, and yet it can't be done with effort. It can't be done with more knowledge. I can teach you all I want, and it doesn't help you any. In fact, Paul says the opposite. Knowledge makes one arrogant. 1 Corinthians 8. It's love giving out that produces maturity. That's his answer. So let me summarize where we've come, just to set the stage. God gave the covenant and then the law to reveal and expose our sin. It was a gift. Knowledge did not help us. The result, we died and sin became our master. We were enslaved to sin. Guess what we learned there? Effort didn't help us. Knowledge didn't help. Effort didn't help. The problem was here, not the, not the law. The law accomplished God's purpose. It was a gift for us. Through the salvation process, we died to sin, and we were freed from this terrible, tyrannical master we call sin. We've been given our freedom, the new exodus. Through the cross, atonement was made for us and our sin was forgiven, which allowed space for the God to indwell us through the Holy Spirit. That's Pentecost. He cleansed the temple at the cross. That's what he did. Us. Through our faith, we have experienced a true exodus from sin. Now what? 
Now what? What does it take to live a life of faith, a life of holiness, a life you were designed and created to live, a life that brings you the deepest joy? As we move into Romans 8, we move into Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. We're setting the stage. And from now on out, we're starting to move toward Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, where all of reality and redemptive history came to bear. Christ did it and set the stage for the coming spirit. This is what Lent is all about. This is what Easter is all about. You're looking forward to getting to that place? Freedom? It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. All the knowledge, all the effort will make a difference. We're still missing something. Father, thank you for... Well, thank you for your goodness. Not wiping us out and starting over again. But helping us to see, through this wonderful gift of the law, helping us to see the true nature of our own brokenness and sinfulness. Because that only makes us turn back to you. You're the only one who can solve it. Thank you. In your son's name, amen.